Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Dr. Martin Shaw, a clinical psychologist and the clinical director at the Cognitive Behavior Therapy Center of Southern California. CBT SoCal is a group practice that specializes in treating people with anxiety disorders, most specifically obsessive-compulsive disorder in its various forms, as well as CBT for unique presentations such as trichotillomania, exoriation disorder, body dysmorphic disorder, insomnia, tics, and chronic pain. Dr. Shaw is a member of the International OCD Foundation, a diplomat with the Academy of Cognitive Therapy, and has lectured and supervises adjunct professor of clinical psychiatry and behavioral sciences at USC Keck School of Medicine. Quick disclaimer, the information provided in this podcast episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be used as medical advice. If you have your own mental health concerns, please consult your medical provider and ask for an appropriate referral. Martin, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me, Aaron. I'm really excited to have you on this episode. You know, I've found over recent years, oftentimes, that when I'm working with patients and I'm kind of finding out about them and we're working through the things that's going on with them, that oftentimes OCD is underlying what's actually really happening. And that's something that I've been finding more and more frequently so you are an, o- an OCD expert, and I'm really excited to hear more of your insights about OCD and kind of do a deep dive on how we diagnose OCD and recognize the symptoms of it. So thanks so much for coming on. You bet. Yeah. And I think that's really well said is that, I mean, if, if, we, if we don't know what to look for, it's, it's easy to kind of miss it or think of it as something else, because sometimes we think of OCD maybe in... in uh, uh, the mainstream uh, view of OCD is you think of maybe people who check their locks or the stoves, you know, multiple times, or maybe people who, you know, wash their hands excessively to avoid contamination. And those are certainly common forms that OCD can take. Um, but there are certainly many others that maybe we'll talk about today that, you know, even the well-trained uh, mental health professional that hasn't done a lot, a lot of work with OCD might miss it and might misconceptualize what's going on if they don't spot that as a similar mechanism to how OCD works. Right. There's a lot of stereotypes about OCD, and we see those in the media and movies and TV shows, and those can be all sort of interesting and amusing. But right, there's a much deeper phenomenology here of OCD, and um, looking forward to doing a deep dive on the subject. But before we get started on that subject, Martin, I'd really like to hear a little bit more about you, kind of how you got into the field and how you became interested in OCD. Yeah, so I'm a psychologist in the state of California in the Los Angeles area. Um, I uh, manage a group practice here called the Cognitive Behavior Therapy Center of Southern California. I know it's a mouthful, so we often go by CBT SoCal. Yeah. You know, we're a team of therapists. Uh, We do some assessment and testing as well, but primarily we, we work with people, as you said, dealing with OCD in various forms as well as kind of any sort of adjacent forms of anxiety, people dealing with panic episodes, social anxiety, health and illness fears, some phobias. We deal with people with insomnia and um, a range of other things on our team uh, that people come with different specialties. 
you know, uh, the founder of our practice, uh, Dr. Rodney Boone, he recently retired, but he started this practice several decades ago. And um, so it's, it's sort of the legacy of our practice doing a lot of work with OCD because that was something he was known for, done a lot of lectures, um, supervision and consultation. We, we continue to do that. That's a, a brief intro to kind of where I work and what we do. So let's start by talking a little bit about OCD. How do we define it? What exactly is OCD? Right, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. So obsessions, as we understand it, the obsessive part, the O in OCD, is any, any sort of unwanted intrusive thought that causes anxiety, uh, an image uh, about something that people are afraid is happening or could happen, but that isn't necessarily, right? And, but it causes a lot of anxiety, a lot of distress. And a compulsion, right? The C in OCD is any action that we take to sort of neutralize that anxiety or sort of try to get rid of it in some sort of short-term way. And those compulsions can become very, very sort of arbitrary. Sometimes we call compulsions rituals, right? Washing rituals where people need to wash their hands a certain number of times or for a certain arbitrary amount of time, or people need to count or tap or walk in sort of ritualistic ways to get rid of certain bad thoughts, the obsessions. The obsessions can take on a number of forms. Uh, the compulsions can take on a number of forms, but the general mechanism is similar in that uh, there's a, unfortunately going to be an unsuccessful attempt to use a compulsion, or it, it could be a mental rumination to get rid of some unwanted and anxiety-inducing thought or image. And that's what causes the disorder and perpetuates it because it doesn't, just doesn't work. So with OCD, Martin, does one need to have both obsessive thoughts and compulsive behaviors? You know, that's a great question. Um, and that has been sort of back and forth throughout the years in the literature on OCD, based on the way it was written in the DSM before it was, you know, you could have just one compulsions and not obsessions to meet criteria for OCD. However, anyone who works in the field a lot will tell you that Typically, if someone's dealing with the obsessions, they're going to be dealing with compulsions in some form or uh, in, in some way. You know, people aren't really going to be doing a compulsion in that sense unless they're <laughs> unless they have a reason to, and that would be an obsession. So, you know, you pretty much see them go hand in hand together. One interesting distinction is some people used to talk about something called pure O which is people that have obsessions, unwanted thoughts, and sort of those repetitive, intrusive thoughts and images, but no compulsions. Basically, over time, we're understanding that that's, uh, we think of it a little bit differently. People may not be doing concrete, tangible compulsions, like washing their hands or checking locks or tapping on a, on a table, but they may be doing some sort of mental compulsion or mental rumination that's not observable from the outside. Whether you call it puro or just someone dealing with mental compulsions or mental rumination, it's still a form of OCD as we typically understand it. Well, great. And that gets us into sort of the meat of today's episode that I really was excited to have you talk about this deep dive on obsessive thoughts and compulsive behaviors, because I know as we were talking about earlier that they often show up in ways that we don't really expect we don't easily or readily identify until we really know like an expert like yourself can come in and say, no, this is what an obsessive thought looks like or a compulsion looks like. 
that are often hard to spot, as you're well aware. And so I want to talk about some of these, and maybe you could give some of your experience with what these actually look like for real people in real life. And I can chime in too, because I see a lot of it as well. Mm -hmm. We can have a discussion about that. That might be helpful for people who are wondering if they might have OCD or somebody they know might has OCD. So yeah, let's start with obsessive thoughts first off. And I know there's like several different kinds of obsessive thoughts that people sometimes have. And one category has to do with aggressive types of obsessive thoughts. Tell us a little bit about what those might look like. What are some examples of that? Yeah, sort of a, a, a term we use in the OCD specialist community is harm OCD. And uh, that may involve unwanted thoughts of harming somebody else, or it may involve unwanted thoughts of harming oneself. And we've had people who have dealt with one or the other or both. And uh, some people will say, you know, I just, I heard a story on the news about someone that took their own life by jumping off a bridge. And then people start to worry like, well, wait a minute, I drive over, I jog over a bridge every day. What if I did that? You know, I, I don't want to do that. I'm not depressed. I don't want to end my life. But what if I did? Just the fact that they have that thought and worry about it starts to kind of give the thought more power and more attention in their mind. And then the mental rumination may simply be trying to reason with themselves and figure out and put themselves to rest as to why they wouldn't do it. But that can really be a trap. Tangibly, what that might look like is avoiding that jogging route where you go over the bridge. And then we're sort of avoiding it. But then that also kind of builds up this idea. It's sort of positively reinforcing like, oh, I feel a sense of relief as long as I avoid that bridge. And then the more longer, the more times they do that, it sort of uh, can give the obsession and that fear more strength. Yeah. And so so that sounds like a, a really good example of like an obsessive suicide or self-harm type of thought. And I'm assuming like the harming of others type of thought is sort of a similar thing like that, except reverse. Am I going to stab somebody or hurt somebody? Like, totally. Could you say a few things about that? Absolutely. We've had people who would sort of say, you know, I've had these unwanted thoughts about stabbing a family member, stabbing my child, would I slip their throat? And so I really shouldn't be around knives. Yeah. Um, all the knives have to be put away. Or if they're there, I can't be near them. Someone else always has to be there. We've had people have had unwanted thoughts about harming a pet. You know, like that I shouldn't be alone or in the same room with the pet, uh, you know, and the, the aggression can be uh, of a violent nature like that, like actually harming someone with a blade or pushing someone off a bridge for new parents, new mothers, sometimes unwanted thoughts of harming a baby uh, because, you know, he's this, this helpless, innocent, young dependent. It's a stressful transition. New parents may be underslept and adjusting to the, all the realities of parenthood. And sometimes that's a prime time if someone has a propensity for OCD for that to come in. And it could be aggressive thoughts of drowning or dropping or flinging one's baby. And that can be incredibly distressing and confusing. Oftentimes there are unwanted sort of aggressive sexual thoughts thoughts of what if I'm a pedophile? I had a sexual thought about someone who's uh, they're in middle school or they're a kid and like it can be of a sexual nature, but is aggressive as well. And that causes a lot of distress for people too. Yeah. So I think this one is so important, Martin, because I know I've seen this before in my practice, people have these kinds of thoughts 
And it's really, really scary for them. I mean, who likes to have a thought about stabbing your mother with a knife or throwing your baby off of a bridge? Or I might just jump off that bridge myself on my jog. Those are really scary and disturbing thoughts for a lot of people. And how do you sort of distinguish that between I'm really like a dangerous person who might stab somebody. I have these violent, inappropriate images or thoughts and say, no, nah, that's not what's actually going on. It's it's obsessive thoughts. It's not actually real violent urges. How do you know the difference between the two? That's a great question. And I think it gets at some core features of OCD in general. But I think what I would say is you can always tell uh, because if someone is coming to you and saying, I'm having these thoughts and they're causing me a lot of anxiety, I don't want to have them. That's pretty much a telltale sign that that is OCD. If someone actually has a history of violence or has some reason that they would tell you as to why I'm angry at someone and I might harm them, or you know, I have a history of, of self-harm and I'm I'm depressed and I, I you know I might be a danger to myself, right? That's just, it's just a very different story. I think you work with enough people over time, you can you can sort of tell. Right. If they're really just like, no, I'm not depressed at all. I'm really a little bit depressed that I mean that I'm dealing with OCD and that's really disturbing. But otherwise, I don't want to harm myself. I don't want to end my life. You know, I, I think it also gets to a larger piece. There's one approach to dealing with OCD that we call the inference-based CBT approach, which is basically one of the main premises of it is that obsessions are purely based in a fantasy world. There's no evidence to back up that they are happening right here, right now, whatever the fear is. And it may not even be just here, right here, right now. I have no history of violence. I have no history of self-harm. I'm just having these thoughts that I might harm someone or help or harm myself. But there's nothing to back that up. The only thing that's propping up that fear and that worry is my imagination. And the more I worry about what's in my imagination and try to put it to rest and figure it out, the more I'm sort of getting wrangled in with it and uh, falling into that trap. Um, but the, the evidence doesn't back it up in those cases. Yeah. So I think that's very important for people who are listening to this podcast here and happen to have these kinds of violent or horrific obsessive thoughts to just remember, like, you're not a bad person and you don't really want these things to happen just because they're popping into your head. You don't have a whole lot of control over it. And so when you start to think, I'm thinking these things actively because I'm a bad, violent, horrible person, then it gets worse and worse, right? So, I mean, it's just like such an important thing, I think, for people to distinguish. Let's talk about just similar vein on this. I, I know that there's examples of people who have these just images in their head, just like really, really horrific images, like looking at their family or looking at people and just imagining them splattered all over the ground in an accident. And not even that they're going to cause it necessarily, but they've just got these horrific images that come in their head, thoughts or images. Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, I think similarly to what we were saying earlier, what we would want people to understand is that, you know, the mind is a very uh, complex and uh, fascinating, but also weird and disturbing place sometimes, and that we can all have images and thoughts um, that are shocking, scary, violent, inappropriate, taboo. It doesn't have to mean anything. To the extent that we really are grounded in that, um, that's going to help us sort of detach from 
you know, the discomfort of any of these unwanted thoughts. Sometimes I tell folks is, I ask people, have you ever had any uncomfortable, you know, unpleasant dreams, nightmares, any weird things that happen in your sleep where it just felt really weird, but it was, once you woke up, you're like, well, that was weird. That didn't make any sense. And they said, yeah, that happens all the time. And I said, you know, and then what happens? You know, you wake up and you say, well, that, that was a scary dream, but you sort of say, well, that was a nightmare. And you go on about getting ready for your day. But somehow when we have, or at least when the OCD sufferer has a scary or weird or nonsensical image or thought during the day, they, there's a tendency to think that that means more or means something uh, versus if it's in our sleep. And I sort of say, well, I don't, I don't know. Is it that different? It's still produced by the same mind. But, you know, we, we get to choose what, what we make of it. And we can say that means nothing, just like images on a screen are produced scenes in a movie. It could be totally fake. It's edited, produced, acted, written. And uh, you come out of the movie theater and whatever you saw on the screen, it's, it was entertaining. And now you're done. You go on with your real life. And so similar thing, I would say to uh, the kinds of thoughts that you were describing earlier, Aaron, it's just like, all right, so we're having these thoughts. Let's talk a bit about contamination. That's a common one. And people sometimes have these contamination, obsessive thoughts have to do with contaminants, germs, waste, substances. Can you tell us a little bit about what's, what that's like for people and how that manifests? Yeah, certainly anything can look different person to person. But I think it's also interesting, you know, in the time of COVID in the last few years, uh, where obviously heightened a lot of anxiety for a lot of folks who were already uh, maybe dealing with OCD in this form. But you know, just think of it this way, probably for the average person who is not suffering from OCD, you know, we wash our hands a number of times during the day, you go to the restroom, right? Or after you do the dishes or touch something dirty or greasy, do some gardening, whatever it is, right? And, uh, but we generally, we just kind of go about our day and we, you know, take care of our hygiene of our body, our hands and our homes, just the way that we do. And we don't think, we don't think too much about it, but for the OCD sufferer of contamination OCD, um, right. It can be a lot of extra mental energy spent wondering, is it clean enough? Trying to feel, have I washed my hands? You know, who touched that doorknob? Who touched that light switch? Did I wash before I touched the light switch? Clorox wiping, lots of long cleaning rituals that can be, you know, expensive and time consuming um, where everything feels gross, everything feels disgusting, or everything might make me get sick, um, or contract something that I would pass to someone else, or it might make me vomit, something like that. There's different end pathways where uh, contamination OCD uh, hits at a core fear for people. It can be very time consuming and very distressing for a lot of people, and in otherwise very, you know, a lot of mundane day to day situations that the rest of us take for granted. You know, something that I've noticed has come up a number of times with patients in the past, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, this sort of idea, this kind of arbitrary idea that something's like clean or dirty. Like, you know, let's just say I have a bed and I made the bed and my wife comes home from work and she's been at work all day and she sits down on the bed. And then she gets up and somehow the bed has been contaminated (laughs) because she was in her work clothes. And by sitting on the bed, it contaminates the bed. And now the bed is contaminated, even though you don't see any germs, there's no dirt on her clothes, you know, that's all over the bed, but it's sort of like this kind of subjective, arbitrary 
idea about clean and dirty. Do you see that a lot, that kind of phenomenon? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, well, we, we've worked with folks who basically, you know, if they come home from work or school, everything is dirty. Everything is contaminated. I've got to change out of my clothes, got to take an immediate shower. And that's obviously very extreme at that point. Right. Cause you know, maybe, like I said, the rest of us, maybe we would say like, well, you know, I went to the office, but you know, everything seems, you know, pretty well kept up, pretty clean. There's nothing, you know, there's no hazardous materials going on. So everything, you know, it's dry paper and computers, right? You know, maybe, maybe if you work in a, a chemical plant or something, yeah, okay. There's, <laughs> or if you're a physician yeah. or a nurse, right? And you, you know, you work with patients or, or even a restaurant worker, right? Okay. So you're working with, you know, substances and materials and things that involve a certain requirement for cleanliness. Fine. Okay. But otherwise, you know, a lot of the rest of us, uh, you know, I'd like to think uh, maybe we interact with some germs, but you know, uh, we kind of come home and uh, unless we're dealing with OCD, we don't think too much about it. Yeah. And, and you said a really interesting point a few minutes ago, Aaron, it's just that things become either clean or dirty. You know, this is a safe zone or it's completely contaminated. It becomes black and white, all or nothing versus in reality, it's probably, you know, gradations, right? Yeah. And uh, that, that sometimes playing off those gradations is what helps us with treatment, actually, uh, because if we're doing exposure and exposure with response prevention, you know, we want to help people slowly start to confront more and more uncomfortable things. But we've got to start somewhere that's just slightly uncomfortable. Yeah. So we sort of have to help people really think through what they really believe about level of contamination, which in all, in all likelihood, if, if we're able to get, get through to them, they may admit that there's a lot of gray area. Well, right. And a lot of times there really isn't any kind of logic or factual or rational reason why one thing is dirty or clean other than a person's sort of feelings of disgust or discomfort about about that thing without any kind of factual evidence, right? Uh, correct. Yeah. I mean, I would say that there is a logic to OCD. It's a faulty logic, mm -hmm. but it, it's the faulty logic. It's that's very convincing to the sufferer. And that's why the pattern is perpetuated. But you're right. In, in all likelihood, the, the unwanted fear, the obsession is not going to be backed up by actual concrete sense-driven experience. Let's talk about religious-oriented obsessive thoughts. And I know a lot of people with OCD, religion and religious thoughts kind of bleed into their thinking. And there's thoughts having to do with right or wrong. Some people refer to as like scrupulosity and their behavior. What do you observe with your patient population around the religious obsessive thoughts? Just like everything else, as I said, it can take on a number of forms, it can be very, very interesting the way that it presents, but, you know, very distressing for people because this gets at really broader existential themes for some people. So, you know, you might think that, you know, religious scrupulosity is uh, maybe more uh, exclusively featuring among people that are actively, uh, you know, religious and, and, you know, devoted to their own respective faiths, but we really don't necessarily see that. I mean, we've certainly seen people who are uh, raised in Christian or, or Catholic traditions where there is a lot of liturgy and a lot of specific practices and prayers, and that can build up a lot of fear and rigidity around it. But at the same time, there's a lot of folks who don't necessarily identify with any particular worldview or religion who just sort of say, oh, I had a bad thought, and I'm worried that that might 
make me a bad person or put me in uh, bad graces with God, however they understand God or a higher being. And I don't know, they, they would say, you know, it's interesting because sometimes people say, I don't even know what I believe. I don't even know if I believe in God. I don't even know if I believe or heaven and hell, but somehow I just am so worried that these thoughts I'm having uh, or thoughts that I'm afraid to have make me afraid of <laughs> this vague idea of a higher power, this vague idea of, of an afterlife. Again, it really comes down to the meaning placed on the thoughts in some ways more so than someone's actual religious or spiritual beliefs. Yeah. And, you know, I've seen a number of examples in my practice in the past where a person does something and then obsesses about whether what they did was wrong. I mean, it just, it just sort of like eats away at them and they can't stop thinking about, did I do this wrong? Did I say something inappropriate or upset somebody? That thought just sort of, if, if they obsess about it, like, is that another common way that you see that it could manifest itself? It could, yeah. I mean, and I would say maybe that's uh, not unique to scrupulosity, but it can lead us into a trap where, again, we're trying to figure it out in our minds. We're trying to say, well, it wasn't that bad, right? Well, but maybe it was. And again, the, the mind just becomes very much stuck in this toilet bowl going around and around and around trying to figure out if something actually happened or if it didn't. And there's really no way to figure that out. What we typically tell folks is that if they find themselves in that sort of thought process, whatever the context of the thought is, it's likely they're stuck in some sort of ruminative process, which is essentially a mental rumination or a mental compulsion trying to find relief from that anxiety, but it's, it just doesn't work. Yeah, I think that's a great point. So one way for a person to know if it's actually an obsessive thought or not is that nothing seems to really satisfy yes. that obsessive thought to break that loop, like no evidence or data really, you know, kind of like, ah, okay, I've got it. Let me move on. It's just always something else, right? To undermine exactly. the uh, piece of evidence or data that you're trying to use to dismiss it. Yeah. And in inference-based CBT, they sometimes use the terms normal doubt and obsessional doubt. A normal doubt has an end to it, right? So, you know, one OCD sufferer maybe dealing with scrupulosity would say, you know, uh, well, I had that, you know, sexual thought about somebody else that I'm not married to, and that's, that's a sin, or I feel bad about it. And well, but what does that mean? Does that mean I actually would, or, you know, and then they go round and around and around. Uh, unable to figure it out. And that's that's ruminative. And that we would say is an obsessional doubt if they can't put it to rest. But that same person, maybe they, you know, they go home and they lock their front door behind them. And then five minutes later, after they come back from the bathroom, whatever, they say, Wait, did I lock the front door? And they go and they look, oh yeah, it's locked. That's normal doubt. There was a question. I'm not sure. There was a little bit of uncertainty, but they look or they see it, uh, or maybe they hear it or they touch it and it's done. They trust their senses. And at least in that context for that person, it's done. There's an end to it. There's a solution and it's done. And maybe for this person's coworker or someone next to them, it'd be the total opposite. They don't worry at all the scrupulosity, but they are stuck checking their locks multiple, multiple times when they come home. That's where it can get very, very interesting. But that just, again, all that to say is to differentiate between normal doubt, which you know all of us have from time to time, but that's fine. It doesn't cause us distress. We check something again, we get some more information and it's done. Um, but 
obsessional doubt will go around and around and around and is insatiable. Let's talk a little bit about obsessive thoughts regarding symmetry and exactness and the need for that. What does that look like uh, with people you see in your practice? Yeah, as you said, uh, it can take on the form of things needing to be organized or lined up a certain way. This is sometimes a stereotype of what people talk with OCO. So-and-so is when they use OCD as an adjective, unfortunately, uh, where they say, oh, so-and-so is so OCD about their whatever, their closet or their, their car or something. They want things to be clean and not necessarily for contamination fear's sake, but just because they're very conscientious about it. Sometimes that's not OCD, by the way. Sometimes that's just people really want their car to be clean and they like it that way. That's fine. It's not causing them distress. But what you're talking about with sort of, uh, you know, uh, symmetry and things needing to look uh, a certain way, sometimes we refer to that as teretic OCD, teretic as in Tourette's. That's a term that's been used in the literature. Not that it's a tick per se, but that the sort of mechanism around what causes the distress for someone is not so much an unwanted thought or an image, right? That something bad will happen if these things aren't symmetrical or organized in order or a certain way, but more just that it just doesn't feel right. Sometimes people talk about not quite, just not quite right, not quite right OCD. And that's, that's kind of more what's going on here. And what we typically see is it, it's, again, not so much afraid of something bad happening or the what if or the uncertainty of it or the doubt that it caused. It's like, no, there's no doubt here. It's just, just really hard to tolerate. It really mm-hmm. bugs me. It's, it's really just uncomfortable to see that that way. And, uh, and then I, I kind of want to fix it. Well, so things are out of order. They're asymmetrical and it just bugs me. And I can't stop thinking about it bugging me. I might leave the house and I'm driving away for the next half hour. I'm thinking about that shirt that is in the wrong place in my bedroom. I'm I'm already, I'm not even in my bedroom, but but it just bugs me that it's not where it's supposed to be. Let's talk a little bit about lucky and unlucky numbers and that kind of phenomenon. I know that people sometimes have obsessive thoughts about those kinds of things. And what's going on for people when that happens? Yeah, it's interesting bringing that up in a conversation about OCD. I think where that's different, you know, I used to work with a lot of people with gambling problems, right? And they have lucky numbers or lucky (laughs) tables or lucky dealers, right? Um, or that lucky convenience store where I bought that scratcher once where I want a hundred bucks or whatever it is. You know, I mean, I think at some level it's just, it's positively reinforcing for someone who's a gambler or by the way, I should say athletes, uh, athletes mm-hmm. can be very superstitious pitchers, baseball players. I had that really good series. I play really well in this park against this team, or, uh, you know, I have my lucky shoes, uh, or my lucky, whatever it is something, a routine I do before a game. So in that sense, it can look very similar to a compulsion because it's might seem arbitrary from the outside. Like, why is that your lucky? Now, okay, if you happen to win once and at that table, so that's your lucky table, right? It, it sort of is like a magical thinking sort of thing. I guess the reason why it's different from OCD is that it may or may not be debilitating in the same way, right? Uh, someone might say, well, I, I really did pitch well, that game when, you know, I uh, said seven Hail Marys and, you know, rubbed my toes <laughs> together or something before the game. It doesn't mean it happens every time, but I'm going to keep doing it because I believe in it. So it's not necessarily causing them distress, 
in the way that a mental rumination or compulsion would be, but it, it can sort of mimic that function and that you hope something good is going to happen from it. I can recall stories, for example, like, let's just say the person's number is four, that they need to take four steps before they do something, because if they don't, it just doesn't feel right. And they got to take that extra step or they're doing something and it can't end on an odd number or an even number because it, again, it just doesn't feel right and it bugs them unless they even it out somehow or they do the right number of steps or right number of rituals or behaviors to get it to where they need it to be. And otherwise, yeah, they're just having that uncomfortable feeling. It's it, A lot of it comes down to this sort of uncomfortable feeling people have, right? This, you know, I just don't feel right. I got to make this the way it needs to be in order for me to be able to, and maybe that's the compulsive behavior. We'll get to the compulsions later, but that, does that sort of sound um, accurate? Kind of the way that you see it? It probably depends. If it seems like it's more of a teretic OCD, then it's more like, yeah, it just won't feel right. Almost like a physiological kind of way. Something's not right. And that's why we, that may be why they originally called it teretic OCD because it's just like a, a tick what drives a tick is more physiological rather than sort of cognitive, if you will, where there's a, a thought that I do the tick when there's a certain bad thought happening. That's not typically what we see. And so it is more sort of visceral and guttural in that sense. But again, it may be a different mechanism if it's someone who is just superstitious um, in a way that they believe protects them or helps them. And that may not may not be something that you or I see in our in our offices, because if it's not causing distress, they're they're not going to seek help for it. Yeah. So let's get to compulsive behavior. So you've explained it that a compulsion is sort of a compensatory behavior to deal with an obsessive thought that causes anxiety for the person. And the compulsion is something that they do in order to relieve that anxiety. And so I'd like to go through some categories of the compulsive behaviors as well. And maybe you could just give us a few words on what these look like in real life examples and how it relieves anxiety. So let's start with cleaning. I know that there's cleaning, there's excessive cleaning, there's ritualized cleaning, there's ex excessive measures that people take to clean the right way. And what do these look like in real life terms? So many different ways. Like I said, it could be a lot of excessive use of Clorox wipes on door handles, on light switches, toilet handles. You know, we've worked with people who, you know, let's say for hand washing, um, will wash for extensive periods of time, use warm, a lot, very warm water, um, wash up past to their elbows to quote unquote, make sure that they've really you know, disinfected, washing so much and so frequently that their hands may be dry yeah. and uh, cracked and bleeding. Right. Actually causing medical problems. Yeah. Right. No pun intended, just bleeds into lots of other things. Um, yeah. It's just a lot of avoidance, right? Where touching their keys. Well, you know, uh, my key, well, this key touched that key on my key ring and then it was in my pocket. And, uh, but this key touched my car door and well, you know, I don't know that one time the car door and there was the gasoline spilled out and it's just a long chain of events that again, for the person who's not suffering from OCE, they said, eh, maybe I'll wipe it off or that was a long time ago. So whatever yeah. it's done, you know, there's a tendency to believe that things are just equally germ infested or dirty or contaminated perpetually. 
And then if something comes into contact with something that was dirty, it is also equally as dirty. And then second hand, third hand, fourth hand, fifth hand, sixth hand, it's all equally spreading of whatever the germs yeah. or contaminants were. Yeah, that's what we were sort of uh, talking about earlier, this idea that when something just comes in contact in some way with something else, that thing is totally contaminated. And it's it's like there's the clean zone and the dirty zone. And for yeah. the person with OCD, like just being in the clean zone is where they're always trying to be. Right. It can be incredibly distressing because there can be a part of the person suffering who kind of understands that, but the level of discomfort in trusting that is so high that they, you know, are going to tend to err on the side of what feels more comfortable, which is yeah. to avoid, clean more, disinfect more. So, like I said, it can take on a lot of different forms. What does ritualistic cleaning and maybe ritualistic washing and bathing look like? A uh, number of forms. I mean, again, it could take on the amount of time spent on something, the number of times, how frequently someone does it at a specific time, uh, you know, while doing specific things. It can be very arbitrary. You know, I mean, I think more so than whether it's ritualistic or not is what purpose does the ritual or the excessive washing or cleaning serve? Yeah. Again, it can feel like it's giving someone a greater sense of certainty, a greater sense of things are clean. But uh, there comes a point where the more times and the more time one spends cleaning or doing something ritualistically, it actually loses its meaning. And uh, that pattern becomes stronger and stronger, needing to overdo it. Yeah. That's, again, the trap of OCD. Yeah. I've seen situations, Martin, where like, for example, somebody will go and take a shower and they have a routine on how they're going to shower. Like maybe they start from the feet and, and then they go all the way up to wash themselves off. And then the last thing they're going to do is wash their hands because their hands is like, you know, the quote dirtiest part of their body. And they're going all the way up and they accidentally like bump their thigh with their hand. And so they've got to go back down to the thigh and start working their way back up again. And so there's like a whole process that needs to take place, whether it's hand washing or showering, whatever. It's just very cumbersome. You know, I sort of see these kinds of things. Or like you said, like things have to be washed five times. Got to do it five yeah. times and you wash and then, and then you dry your hand and then you wash it again and dry your hand. And, and you got to start over if something happens to get in the way of that. Yeah, you know, and you're, what you're also bringing to mind is, you know, realistically, these forms of OCD often kind of bleed together too. So, yeah. for instance, you know, we've worked with people who will have a have a whole showering ritual, but it's actually not about cleaning themselves of contaminants. It's actually just getting rid of bad thoughts or staving off the possibility of some bad thought coming true, and somehow it it sort of in their minds attaches itself to their shower routine where I do this shower in a very prescribed way. And then I change the water temperature and then I count to this number or whatever. And I take 10 deep breaths and then I blink. And so, you know, it happens in the context of hygiene and, and cleaning, but the, the, again, the mechanism and the doubt and fear behind it, it has nothing to do with contamination in real life. These things don't categorize that cleanly. Sure. Yeah. So I yeah. just have a ritual on how I do things. And if it gets messed up, some vague bad thing might happen. So I've just got to start it over and do it again totally, yeah. correctly. Mm -hmm. yeah. you, you were talking a little bit earlier about the idea of checking to see if you turn things off or 
went back to make sure things were locked. Tell us a little bit about that compulsion, the kind of checking and rechecking phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, you can make the case that maybe all OCD is checking compulsions or reassurance seeking in some form or fashion, but that's a very tangible one where some people will check the locks on their doors or check the knobs on the stove uh, to make sure that it's off. The temptation is to say, well, you know, is it off? Okay. Or, or is it locked? Let's go, let's go to the lock. For those of us who aren't suffering from this, you walk in your front door and you close the door and behind you, you, whatever you, you lock it and that's done. You saw it, you heard it and you felt it lock when you lock the door and you trust your senses. And then you go about your, the rest of your business at home for the person suffering from OCD in this form, they've learned to distrust their senses. They say, well, I, maybe I saw it and I heard it and I, and I, I felt it locked, but you know, just in case, let me do it again. Well, this time, did it feel, did it feel right? I think that one was better, but you know what, let me do it again, just in case. Right. And then this builds up this pattern of rubbing off their trust in their senses and building up doubt. And it builds up this narrative in their mind by experience that they need to doubt and they should doubt and they should check over and over again. And then it becomes this reinforced pattern that at some point takes a lot of time, causes a lot of distress and uh, can, you know, it can affect other areas of their life because they've stopped trusting their own common sense and their own senses. And what about checking and rechecking in the context of work? Because I know that I see that a lot coming up with patients and just let's pick on doctors and lawyers here for a moment. I've had a number of doctors or people in the healthcare profession who are like going and checking and rechecking. Did I write the progress note correctly? Did I order the right labs? Did I prescribe the right medication? And they'll go check and recheck over and over again, whether they did that correctly or with attorneys. Did I check all of the arguments correctly? Did I write the wrong words in the the brief to make sure that they are accurately reflecting what I wanted to say? And there's a lot of self-doubt and a lot of rechecking there. And I'm just wondering how you see that playing out, either with those or other careers even. It just seems like a really burdensome way to exist in a job setting with the OCD. Yeah, it certainly can. I mean, uh, people have, you know, deadlines to meet, clients and supervisors and bosses to make happy, high stress, high pressure, high stakes situations. And so that can certainly feed into this idea that I really got to be extra careful. And again, that's not entirely a misdirected notion, right? It's like, hey, you know, with the way I prepare for something or you know, the level of detail with which I go over something is going to affect whether someone dies or lives or whether someone goes to prison or not, or, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars at stake or something based on preparing for a presentation or a document. You know, that is a lot of pressure. You know, obviously there are people who do those jobs who don't go over things and over prepare to the extent that it causes them unnecessary distress or that it takes on more of a OCD form where, again, they, they don't trust themselves at all. That's where I would see the crossover is if someone is double checks their work and is very thorough and, and goes over things again, but at the end of the day, they trust themselves, then I would say we're probably not going to see them in our offices for OCD. The person's probably doing okay, at least in that regard. But for someone 
who has really just like, man, I'm spending hours and hours on this document that should only take 15 minutes. You know, if that person hasn't already lost their job or is in danger of losing their job, uh, you know, we're, we're going to see this person because, as you said, so much distress is not going to be sustainable for them. A similar idea is sort of like this rereading and rewriting things. Like you'll see this a lot with students, right? Where people are like reading something and they're doubting what they read and they're going back and starting again and rereading and reading. It's like, they're just not getting it because they're doubting their reading abilities and redoing it. And the same with writing, they can't seem to finish things. Yep. So what would you say about like those manifestations of the compulsive behaviors? Yeah, those can be real tricky ones because, you know, sometimes people will say, man, you know, I, I got through high school, I got through college, I got through graduate school even, and that was a lot of reading, a lot of homework, a lot of writing. And then all of a sudden now I just can't do it anymore. Um, I've, there's just this pressure built up on my ability to just read a simple article. And it's something online, not even anything particularly meaty or writing, uh, creative writing for work of some kind. I, I'm just so in my head that I can't just let it flow. I can't do what otherwise I know that I can do and have done before. So it can be a really tough thing to sort of untangle, you know, to the extent that it, it does fit an OCD presentation. You know, we, we want to sort of uh, help people, you know, practice this on lower stake situations similarly to a hierarchy of, of how we treat with exposures. You know, instead of trying to read a whole article, can we read a paragraph first? And before we read a paragraph, can we read one sentence? And before we read a sentence, can we read one word? And just rebuild that confidence and that trust, as we said earlier, in themselves and their own ability to do it. And that may take some time, but at least they're starting to rebuild some confidence and some sense of agency over, over this issue. Let's talk about counting. Now, I know counting is a compulsive behavior that's very commonly seen with OCD. What does this look like as a symptom? You know, we don't see a lot of that, to be honest. I haven't recently, but, you know, I mean, sometimes the idea is that counting, whether it's actually audible to someone on the outside or purely just in one's own mind, uh, which may be more common, somehow brings good luck or staves off bad luck. <laughs> um, or somehow allow someone to cope with some uncomfortable thoughts or images they might be having. In that sense, it may be similar to scrupulosity. Well, if I say seven Hail Marys, then, uh, you know, that violent mean thought that I had is, uh, you know, wiped away. God's forgiven me for it or something. You know, the counting, people can pick very arbitrary numbers. They often can't identify why that particular number is the number they chose or that multiple. Sometimes it's a multiple of three or multiple of seven. They just say, I don't know. I don't know where that came from, but over time, that number or that multiple became soothing to me or somehow gave me a sense of agency over something that I otherwise didn't or didn't feel like I did. And so sometimes that's what that, the form that can take. So how about this compulsive behavior to need to tell, ask, or confess. Like sometimes people have this like urge, like I've really got to say something to somebody. I got to tell them, I got to confess what happened or what I did. And they're just ruminating and ruminating about it until they go and actually do it. They need to do it. And that's the compulsive behavior. What does that look like for people? Well, we only confess things if it's weighing on our conscience. 
right? If, if we feel guilty about something, if it's an OCD sort of confession, it's probably a misplaced sense of guilt. You know, maybe a, a high school age or middle school age kid says, oh gosh, you know, mom, I, I saw my teacher behind the desk and, and I looked at her behind or something. And I just thought, oh, that, but you know, I shouldn't, and I feel so bad. And, you know, and, and so, you know, do you think I should say something? And the mom says, no, 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 don't say anything. To the teacher, please. <laughs> right? Right. Um, but the kid feels really bad, like, oh, that's wrong or something. Right. So look, the, the teacher is a person and the person has all the parts of the body that all the rest of us do. And uh, <laughs> it's a whole person. So that's why I sort of say it can be a misplaced sense of guilt and the ruminating about it, whether it's something bad, they feel anxious about it because, oh, what does this mean about me? Um, does this mean there's something wrong with me? The OCD will prey upon that and sort of say, yeah, well, you might be. Maybe you are someone with taboo desires or taboo impulses, violent, sexual, whatever. Um, so maybe yeah, you better keep that in check. The yeah. OCD loves that. <laughs> yeah. So that that's really interesting. So a lot of times it's not just I did something wrong or bad, but is there something wrong with me internally? Yes. And yes. I've got to go confess this to sort of either absolve myself or have that person reassure me that it wasn't so awful. Yeah, we talk about that. There's sort of the real self and there's the OCD self. And the OCD loves to take something and make someone worry that they could be someone other than who they know themselves to be. Yeah, I could be someone who is adulterous. I could be someone who's violent. I could be someone who, you know, becomes, you know, severely you know, mentally unaware or someone completely forgetful, right? Whereas that's, there's no evidence for that. It's just a fear. It's just a doubt. What about this need to touch, tap, or rub? People have sort of ritualized ways that they feel urges or compelled to do that. What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, similar to counting rituals, it can seem very kind of arbitrary or strange to the someone someone outside of the mind of a person doing with these kinds of compulsions. But, you know, I think oftentimes these sorts of behaviors are aimed at reducing anxiety, aimed at neutralizing some unwanted thought or image, preventing some feared catastrophe from happening. And the person, typically they'll say, I know it seems totally ridiculous. Like, well, I know this doesn't make any sense, but I just feel like I've got to do it. Yeah. I just feel like uh, if I do this somehow, it, it's going to prevent my mom from having cancer, but it's so ridiculous as I say it out loud, (laughs) but they're stuck, stuck in that loop of doing that strange tapping, touching behavior or counting, whatever it is over and over because of this idea that, well, maybe may it it at least makes me feel a little bit better that I did it. Have you seen that in relation to obsessive thoughts about symmetry? Like somebody bumps into something with their left hand. And so they got to go bump something with the right hand to kind of even it out or balance it out. Otherwise it sort of feels undone or uneven. Yeah, I've definitely seen that. Um, I haven't necessarily, and that's not to say it couldn't happen, but I haven't seen that necessarily as a way to stave off undesired uh, catastrophe or fear, but more, as I said, I said in the teoretic form to even it out. Um, But we've definitely seen that before in various forms. Well, Martin, cool. So we went through a lot of the symptoms. We did a deep dive there, and hopefully people will find that helpful to understand better obsessive thoughts and compulsive behaviors and what they might look like in their lives. 
you want to say a few words about like what are the most common other types of disorders that might get confused with OCD? Like what are the main rule outs here? Yeah, and actually I was going to mention one other form of OCD we didn't touch on briefly is a relationship OCD or relationship oh, yeah. anxiety. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah. I mean, we can just, you know, briefly, I mean, you know, oftentimes there's this fear of like, people will say, oh, I've been married happily for 15, 20 years, but, oh, there's this person at work who just is really attractive and uh, laughs at my jokes. Just, I just find very charming. Oh no. What does that mean? Uh, that I'm a, kind of having a, a, you know, a little crush or attracted to this other person. Does that mean that I actually belong with this person and I made a mistake in marrying my spouse of 20 years? And it can lead to all this sort of doubt and rumination too. And that can be very distressing to people because they really sort of feel like, well, but all this stuff you hear in Disney and TV and they earn, you, you're, you're supposed to, you just love your spouse and that's it. And you're happily ever after and you never have any feelings of attraction or sexual thoughts about anybody else ever. <laughs> and then, uh, so that can be very distressing. Yeah. I imagine that could work the other way too. I have a negative thought about my partner or spouse. Mm, yeah. I'm focusing, I'm seeing some physical features of theirs that's <laughs> bugging me today, or they're saying something or doing something in a particular way that's rubbing me the wrong way. Does this mean I don't actually love my partner? Does this right. mean I not supposed to be with them and our relationship is doomed and kind of ruminating and ruminating about that. I suppose it could go that way too. It definitely could. And you put, put the two together because sometimes people will sort of say, ah, you know, just for the last few months, my spouse and I have just been a little bit out of sync or my boyfriend or girlfriend and I, we've just kind of haven't been communicating well, or we've just been so busy. We haven't been able to spend much time together. So we're just kind of feeling a little disconnected. But there's this person in my class or at work who just uh, we just been spending a lot of time together because you know that's where I spend more time and I just feel like very connected to that person and so I'm kind of having some feelings of attraction there. Oh my gosh, what does that mean, right? So you know the timing of all of it when you combine it together can really sort of get people scared. What does that mean? Uh, and it doesn't have to mean anything. Is <laughs> it can just mean we're feeling disconnected from your partner for a period, which happens at times. And there happens to be someone else who you have some connection with. And the OCD would say, well, the fact that you have some connection means that you actually should be in a relationship with that person and not the person you actually are uh, seeing uh, or married to, for that matter. But the reality is, is that's not necessarily the case. I mean, you can have that thought or that feeling about someone, and it doesn't mean you're just going to leave your your significant other to be with that person. Right. And what you just gave was sort of a real rational thought process. But for the person with OCD, that is a ruminating, grinding, anxiety-provoking thought that just is very difficult to dismiss and gets worse and worse. Yeah, because of the tendency to distrust their own common sense, yeah. their own senses, and their own ability to make decisions and judgment, which gets worn down over time by OCD. So that's sort of in a nutshell, the relationship, OCD, relationship, anxiety front. You had asked about differential diagnoses, if you will, with OCD. I mean, a couple come to mind. Uh, first is sort of OCD versus versus ticks that sometimes kind of get lumped together. Ticks and OCD often have gotten lumped together because there's a you know repetitive behavior uh, or habit that keeps going on. But the difference is, is that like, I think we sort of alluded to this earlier, 
typically with OCD, there's going to be an intrusive, unwanted thought or image that the person that's causing anxiety and that the compulsion is designed to neutralize, right? Or reduce the, the discomfort from. With tics, it's a different mechanism. So even though there is a maybe repetitive behavior, it could be a vocal tick, a motor tick, a shrugging of the shoulder or something like that on the facial feature. Typically people will say, you know, I just, sometimes I just do it when I'm stressed. I'm not doing that to get rid of a bad thought. I might be stressed about something, but it's not like, oh, I have a specific thought that I know it doesn't make any sense and I'm doing this tick. People will describe a tick as much more involuntary mm-hmm. and much more sort of a bodily uh, physiological drive to do it. So in that sense, that's different. But as we said earlier, the teretic OCD may be a little bit of a crossover mm-hmm. between OCD and ticks. So the tick is more of like a, like a spasm, an involuntary spasm. You could say that, although, you know, we do work with ticks in our practice. And what we find is that if we can help people identify the urge to tick in that split second before they actually do the tick, there are things that we can do to help people uh, redirect that urge to something else. You know, this idea that ticks just happen and they're involuntary actually turns out not to be the case. We can, in many cases, help people um, manage the urge differently so that the tick over time starts to decrease. And that would be similar with trichotillomania, for example, at Correct. Hair, hair pulling and fingernail pulling or whatever. Correct. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up too, because sometimes those, those uh, skin picking, hair pulling, we call the BFRBs or body focused repetitive behaviors. And those are similarly thought of as under the OCD umbrella because it's a, you know, an undesirable, repeated behavior, pulling out one's hair. It's different from OCD. People won't, don't typically say, well, I, I pick my skin because I think that's going to, you know, prevent my mom from getting cancer or mm-hmm. get rid of that bad thought that I might cut myself with a knife. So I pick my skin. I don't typically, we don't typically hear that. Typically, it's more just like a stress reaction when I'm anxious, maybe when I'm stressed. Or oftentimes when I'm, when people are bored, it's when, uh, you know, people with these tendencies will, will sometimes get stuck doing these kinds of uh, body focused behaviors. You know, where I've seen some misdiagnosis around OCD is with ADHD. I don't know if you've seen mm. that, but I've had a number of examples where patients have come in and they're complaining of problems with attention and concentration and they might even get diagnosed with ADHD and even treated for ADHD with medications. And when I go and examine it very carefully, what looks like actually going on is that the person is spending so much time ruminating that they're getting distracted and they're not able to do the tasks that they need to do. Kind of like the rereading and rewriting thing we were talking about. So right. much mental energy is occupied by the obsessive thoughts and the compulsive behaviors that they're not able to concentrate. So it gets misdiagnosed as ADHD, where it's actually more, it's an anxiety disorder, often OCD. I just wanted to point that out. I'm wondering if that you, that you kind of concur with that observation. Definitely, definitely yeah. And that, that is a rule out for any, uh, when we're doing testing and assessment for students or, or people that are having trouble with schoolwork or, or work, right? Is, you know, okay, okay, so there's a difficulty with attention. That doesn't mean it's ADHD, right? Uh, someone, you know, any of us can have difficulty with attention because of a lot of different things, one of which may be uh, ruminative thoughts and a lot of intrusive unwanted thoughts could be post-traumatic stress, right? Where I'm having intrusive images of something I saw or witnessed, right? And that's not ADHD, 
but it can certainly affect attention. So those are things that we typically we, we want to suss out um, and tease apart to really understand what's going on. But, you know, you also bring up a really interesting point, too, which is that, you know, having OCD and ADHD is also not, you know, mutually, you know, mutually exclusive. Yeah. Uh, people can deal with OCD as well as ADHD, OCD in addition to tics, OCD in addition to bipolar disorder or whatever it is, you know? And so right. sometimes it's, it's not a cut and dry picture of what's going on and how best to help someone. Well, Martin, this has been like a super interesting and helpful and informative conversation about OCD and the symptoms. I really appreciate your coming on the show and talking about this. And hopefully other people will find this interesting and helpful for them to kind of examine their symptomatology and what's going on with them to help figure out, is it possible that they have OCD? And then go seek out help for that. I'm wondering if you have any final thoughts or words you'd like to share about this subject about OCD. You know, my pleasure again, Aaron, thank you for having me um, on your show. And uh, yeah, as you said, I hope anyone listening to this, uh, if this is relevant to them, that they benefit from some of the material we've covered. Um, there's some great resources out there through the uh, International OCD Foundation, the IOCDF. It's a really well-run um, organization and they have local chapters um, all over the nation, all over actually in multiple countries as well. So we have one in, in Southern California, but they're really all over. And uh, they have an annual conference as well. So there's a lot of great resources, great speakers going on there. And uh, so I, I would recommend people check that out if they're interested. Great. Thanks so much, Martin. I appreciate the resources. And again, thanks for coming on the show and wish you the best. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, you can go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks on your preferred podcasting host to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please take some time to give Mind Tricks a good rating and review wherever you are listening. It really helps get the word out to new listeners. And please like and share Mind Tricks posts on Twitter and Facebook by following your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.